Welcome to both Success and Integrity with Bessie Graham, a podcast dedicated to established business leaders like you, ready to bring more meaning into your life in a way that strengthens rather than threatens the financial stability of your business. I'm your host, Bessie Graham. I've worked with business owners, governments, and large funding bodies like the United Nations for over 20 years to bring doing good and making money back together. So let's unpack why you don't have to choose between experiencing success or having integrity in your life. In this podcast, I am going to be looking at and pulling apart my responses to a recent Harvard Business Review article. The HBR article was called, Should Your Startup Be For-Profit or Non-Profit? If you have spent any time listening to this podcast or engaging with me, you will probably already have a bit of a sense of where I'm going to go in this episode. But I want to start the conversation with you today as we explore this by just setting a bit of the context in which this type of conversation and exploration takes place. So there is an old paradigm it has taken hold and remains unexamined, unchallenged, and quite frankly, unconscious for most people. The old paradigm is an abstraction. And what it does is it creates false distinctions, simplistic and romanticised notions, And it makes sweeping statements that box and categorize people and organizations in what really is a desperate attempt to make the world neat and knowable and to make it predictable and controllable. Now, we can see this type of thinking right back in John Stewart's 1836 political essay where the concept of homo economicus came up, which was the idea that humans pursue economic goals motivated by self-interest. This had a foundation in three of the assumptions that are in neoclassical economics, which is that individuals maximise profits and utility that they make rational choices, and that they act in self-interest. Obviously, the reality now, in terms of what we do know about humans, is that that type of thinking really doesn't have any basis in reality. It completely ignores the aspects of the fact that we're actually very irrational beings and we don't have all of the information and we are deeply biased and often have unconscious bias. 
So this type of thinking, if we're reflective and we question it, actually sounds more like the theorists proclaiming their own desired identity, how they want to see themselves and be seen as rational beings. It feels more like that kind of projection of their desired identity than it does of any kind of description of human nature, the way that we behave or how we make decisions. But regardless of how actually irrational that type of thinking is, it took hold in the collective conscience as it relates to business in the 70s when Friedman raised the idea that the sole purpose of an organisation was the maximisation of shareholder value. What I want to point out to you is that old paradigm is the place where we see the roots of this idea that doing good and making money are mutually exclusive. It is a deep discomfort with those two ideas coexisting that is actually at the heart of the old paradigm. And yet rather than admit that discomfort, it is justified by an unquestioning acceptance of these one-dimensional worldviews and either-or mindsets that are summed up in, in these aspects that I've just talked you through. The piece I want to just sit with for a moment now with you when we think about that old paradigm and then we start to move forward into some of the changes that we're currently seeing, I want you just to reflect for a moment with me on eco as it sits within the word economics. So the, the roots of eco means home. And when I think about economics, one of the people who comes to mind is Jonathan Rowson. And there's a beautiful quote where he says, there's something about the idea of home at the heart of economics that we need to reclaim ownership of. I love that idea of thinking about the heart of economics as home and all of the beautiful, rich imagery and ideas that come up when you think about home in a positive sense. Now, whether you like to think about it related to that concept or whether uh, there's a different concept you like. So, for example, one of the ideas that I have always loved is one of the ancient Greek concepts of the notion of polis and polis being this idea of a partnership for living well. And when we think about the end results of if we actually create polis, that partnership for living well, 
what it creates in society is human flourishing. Now, for me, when I talk to you and start to try to shift some of these entrenched and unquestioned aspects of the old paradigm, these notions of polis, human flourishing, economics as returning to the idea of home at the heart of economics. These ideas, what they have in common that need to be part of what helps us shift is that they are about a recognition and embracing of our connectedness. They are about bringing back together, celebrating wholeness and that idea of human flourishing rather than being this tight abstraction as we talked about it related to the old paradigm and this desire to have a very black and white view of the world. So the shifts that we are seeing and that have really been speeding up in recent years around some of the attempts to think differently about the role of business, about how we can actually address entrenched social and environmental problems. All of those shifts that we're seeing are not actually new. I would argue that they are correcting a recent aberration in how we understand ourselves as humans and how we understand the role of business in society. So interests in things like hybrid models or the rise of the social enterprise, these are all a recognition and a reaction against the limitations of the old paradigm. So while those hybrid models are absolutely a start and they seek to improve on the damage that has been done through that old paradigm and that either-or mindset, the problem is they still sit within the false bifurcation of doing good versus making money or non-profits versus for-profits. For me, when I think about the change I want to see and be part of, I want genuine innovation, not just improvement. So for me, it's not enough for us just to move from an either-or mindset. Uh, that, I want the shift from either-or mindset to a both-and mindset, not simply to this uh, kind of hybrid middle ground that still has not actually pushed back and rejected that false bifurcation that we've been talking about. So as I said, I'm interested in that both and future. I want to encourage you to 
think in the same way in terms of not just moving from the old paradigm of abstraction to the hybrid approach of improving, but to instead move to this new space, which is far more pragmatic and is about returning to the roots of business and what it is to be deeply human, that piece is what excites me and what I want to encourage you to think about as we frame this conversation today. So the authors of this HBR article that I'm going to be working through with you today, they missed the contextual framing altogether that I've just run you through in terms of the old paradigm where hybrid sits and what a more deeply human, genuinely innovative shift would look like. They missed that altogether. And while they are presenting themselves as offering a solution, they are so deeply in the old paradigm that they can't actually see the forest for the trees. So what they have done in their article is frame the question or the starting point as how to make the decision of being a for-profit or a non-profit. And yet right there in that framing, they have misnamed the problem because legal structure is not actually the primary decision. And it is not the most helpful starting place for addressing the issues that they claim to want to address. So with a mix of fear-mongering, romanticised notions of the old days when things were simpler, and a bifurcated worldview that leaves unquestioned a one-dimensional view of the role of business and an abusive view of non-profit's role that entrenches unhealthy power dynamics, you would be correct in saying that I found this article disturbing. <laughs> I want to walk you through three key areas where I think the framing of a problem and the arguments put forward in this article from HBR called Should Your Startup Be For-Profit or Non-Profit? I want to talk you through some of those pieces and why I think they have missed the point and why they are dangerous. So the first is really around this aspect of when I talked about the fact that the authors are still so deeply caught up in that old paradigm. So the aspects where they are showing how entrenched their bifurcated thinking is and that they're really just putting forward these, these false ideas and problems can be seen in a few places. So the first is around an argument that they make 
that hybrid organisations are incredibly complex. I'm going to read you a short quote from the article. They say, hybrid organisations also often require two distinct teams with clearly separated duties, multiple governing boards and strong legal oversight, all of which can increase complexity and administrative costs for a mission-driven venture. I don't think I need to point out how bifurcated that is and how much they are claiming that a mission-driven organisation that's trying to do these things, there's very distinct categories of which parts are doing good and which parts are making money, and they cannot meet. So while they're talking about the hybrid piece that we've already discussed when we were setting the context, their unquestioned belief that those two things cannot coexist is demonstrated in their framing and their criticism of a hybrid approach. Two things I want to point out related to this. The first is that rather than misname the problem as a legal structure issue and further entrench ourselves in that black and white thinking that sets doing good and making money up as mutually exclusive and demonizes profits, maybe if what we instead focused on was building an organization that was grounded in its values and behaved in alignment with its values, that also was really clear on what value it brings and then could articulate both its vision for how it will make a difference in the world and the ways it will know if it is trending in the direction of that vision, then we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? If, if that's what we spend our attention and our time and focus on, we wouldn't be having this conversation about legal structures, which is completely irrelevant. So that's the first piece. The second aspect around some of the components in the article where they give away how entrenched their bifurcated thinking is can be found where they are framing tensions where none exist. So I'm going to give you a quick example of that because I'm not going to assume that all of you have read or will read the article yourselves. So here's the quote. Founders and their advisors should anticipate that some of these factors may be in tension with others. For example, the team may be highly motivated by a social mission when the most readily available source of funding is from venture capitalists. Now, the question I want to ask you here is why are we automatically assuming that there is a tension there? This unquestioning old school approach is just infuriating to me and it is so simplistic and unreflective. So again, to automatically assume that if you have a social mission, there is a tension if you take venture capital 
is ridiculous. It is offensive to the humanness of those venture venture capitalists because you're again putting them all in one category when the fact is they're all people. And so there will be some venture capitalists that wouldn't be aligned with your particular social mission, but there will absolutely be others who are aligned. So again, this unquestioning black and white thinking is incredibly unhelpful. The second piece I want to pick up on from the article, and this is an aspect that I'm going to take you in two directions with their examples from the article. They are both incredibly important because they speak to really serious issues that play out if we do not start to question these either-or approaches and mindsets, this black and white thinking that is causing so much damage by continuing to kid ourselves that you cannot bring together doing good and making money. The first aspect around power dynamics that I want to talk to is that multiple times in this article, when they speak about the factors that you need to take into account when deciding whether to be a for-profit or a non-profit, they use these examples about one of the benefits they see with non-profits being that you can get highly capable, skilled employees but pay them below market salaries. That argument makes me really angry for multiple reasons. The first, if we look at it from one aspect of of a power dynamic, is that that type of thinking demonstrates that you put doing good, the charitable sector, non-profits, in a category that is not worthy of paying properly for, and that is offensive. It speaks deeply to the fact that engendered and entrenched aspects of your thinking sit within an approach to the world where gender, racial aspects, and any other type of othering people, we are subjugating, we are putting in these positions and devaluing the work that people are doing. The only people that serves are those in positions of privilege, authority, and power. And the reason why this is incredibly offensive to bring this argument into the realm of advising people who are trying to run an organization and have an impact in the world, and when you use that argument to say, that you should choose a non-profit legal structure so that you can underpay people and not value their work is just outrageous. When we think about the fact that this unseen, unrecognised 
devalued work of caring, cleaning, looking after, all of those types of tasks that are typically, as I said, gendered and framed in ways where certain racial groups or others do that work. What it does when that is unpaid and not seen is it allows those in positions of privilege and power to continue to advance unhindered by either having to do those tasks they don't want to do, but even worse than that, not only do they not have to do it, we don't even make them pay for it. And that is wrong. So that aspect of this article is just fundamentally flawed and incredibly offensive. We should not be setting up and continuing to trap the charitable sector, the nonprofit sector, anyone in that purpose-driven space. We have to stop trapping them because of our own unresolved issues about money and then pushing them into a position that is unsustainable and damaging for their well-being and their families and their financial security. That has to stop. If I look at the last, particularly the last 15 years, and the amount of founders, entrepreneurs, people that I have worked with who have dedicated themselves in this nonprofit and charitable sector, under a legal structure of a non-profit and they have burnt themselves out, ruined relationships, financially put themselves in very tricky situations, not been able to provide for their own families and themselves in ways they would like to because of the sacrifices they made under that old paradigm and the trappings of how we think about the legal structure of a nonprofit, and because of the incredibly inappropriate power dynamics with philanthropic funders, other funders, and board members who demanded that those founders and leaders of nonprofits gave of themselves and sacrificed themselves because it was a good cause, but then refused to actually compensate them properly for their skill and hard work. That, I have just seen that over and over again, and it really upsets and disturbs me when in the name of attempting to advise people well, we use that argument. Stop it. Do not use that argument. It is wrong. And it is, as I said before, it is abusive and entrenching unhealthy power dynamics. Power dynamics, that's my first argument that I have a major problem with this article. The second aspect related to power dynamics is quite different, but it is one that I don't think we're having enough conversations about. And that is related to, I'm going to just find the section in the article which I have 
scribbled all over. I had quite a strong reaction. I've had to like sit with it for days and days to regulate my nervous system and have a considered response to it. But I couldn't let this one go because, as I said at the beginning, it is such a strong example of everything I am pushing against and so many of the examples of these worldviews that I want you as a business leader not to just continue to accept unquestioned. You have to question this and you have to make some conscious and intentional decisions about how you want to show up and how you want to run your business in response to what I'm talking about. So here's the second bit. I'm going to first give you the example that they use. So they talk about this nonprofit that sets up a partnership with Tesco in the UK. The pieces I want to draw out, they say that it was its status as a nonprofit that was pivotal in persuading Tesco to try its nascent technology. So there's an argument being made that like if they weren't a nonprofit there's no way this corporate would have engaged with them. They talk about some of the aspects related to why Tesco engaged and some of the challenges for this organization because of the fact that they were working in an area that corporates weren't yet taking full responsibility for in terms of this was around food waste. And so the challenge of trying to come up with a solution that you don't yet have a customer who values and will pay what it costs to provide that solution, and that's a common piece that happens all the time, right? But in framing it this way and then saying that at the heart of why this partnership could happen was the decision around legal structure is just, in my mind, completely misses the point. But I want to pretend for a moment I believe them. So let's say that it actually was the status of this organisation being a non-profit that was pivotal, pivotal in persuading the corporate to partner with them. Here's what I want to talk about. There are some serious risks that come up for this nonprofit if that is in fact true. So, in the example they use, Tesco does not, and I would argue will not, want to truly acknowledge or pay for the actual costs of addressing the problems that they are a key contributor to. And so what this means, if we say that the only reason a corporate engages with you is because you're set up as a nonprofit and they don't have to actually pay what it really costs to do the work you're doing, then you are setting in place 
a situation where that corporate is able to actually continue to have unsustainable practices, not have to fully acknowledge or pay for the real costs related to them, so they're still able to really treat them as an externality, but at the same time, they can congratulate themselves on doing this wonderful work and partnering with this nonprofit to take responsibility and really make a difference. That is entrenching a deeply unsustainable response to a serious problem. And what it will do is set you up as an organization, if you're that nonprofit, it sets you up in a power dynamic where your organization is actually suffering all of the strain of trying to solve this entrenched massive problem. At the same time, you are not being paid properly to do so. You are not paying your staff properly for their skill sets, for the fact they had to pay to go to university to learn how to address these problems. You are taking on board problems caused by someone else who made money from it and then acting in this scenario as if that's a good thing, that you chose a legal structure that allows you to not be paid properly and for those engaging with you to not value your services but for them to maintain the benefits of it. I'm going to stop for a moment because you may be wondering, Bessie, I thought you loved business. Why are you using this example? I do love business and I do believe business can be a powerful agent for change. What I do not love is this compartmentalizing of doing good and making money. I do not love businesses framing things as externalities that are their responsibility. And this response, this article, this example that frames the choice of a non-profit in this instance as a good thing and frames a partnership as useful and beneficial that is actually entrenching unhealthy power dynamics is not, not helpful at all. The other piece that, that I want to pull out related to what you're actually setting in motion if you develop this kind of partnership with a corporate and you structure it with you being a nonprofit, not charging properly for your work, but then having really an unsustainable aspect of what is going to flow on from there. What will happen is that it's actually really hard to break that cycle once it's entrenched, where a partner, whether that is a corporate whether that is a philanthropist, government, whoever it is, when from the beginning it's set up where they're allowed to act as if and think they are helping you as the nonprofit, when in fact your team, your organisation or you as the founder are carrying the stress and pressure of, of that intervention and not being paid properly or sustainably for it, I think it's pretty obvious that that is going to build resentment 
or that it is going to create really damaging interactions and long-term is the opposite of a good decision. So that's the, the second piece related to power dynamics. In the business model workshops that I run, I go into this in a lot of detail in the piece uh, where I have a specific follow-on workshop for nonprofits to talk about some of these aspects of, of power dynamics because they're really nuanced. There is a whole bunch of ways that you can start to shift power dynamics and I love teaching people how to do that. But I, I wanted to, to use this example around the article framing the choice to make a nonprofit your legal structure and that it will help you partner with corporates who won't yet pay fully for the services that they actually require from you to solve the problems they have caused. I wanted to bring this up just to make people start to pause and question and reflect whether that's actually okay. So as you're listening to this, if you are in that category of, of my primary audience of people I, I work with who are running a business, an established business, you should be thinking about this related to the fact that it is unacceptable for you to engage with nonprofits in this way, to continue to treat things as externalities and refuse to pay properly for them and expect that that is the charitable sector's problem to cover and figure out and for other funders or philanthropists or government to pay to clean up your mess because you just want to see it as an externality, not acceptable. So that, that's the, the piece, the second piece in this article around power dynamics that I wanted to talk to that I deeply disagree with. The last piece I want to go into really brings all of this together because it speaks to the fact that pretty much if I go through you know, all my scribbles all over this, this article. The aspects they are raising as problems or challenges that they're framing as you being able to solve by choosing the right legal structure, they're not actually legal structure questions or problems. It's, it's just an incorrect naming. So the, the piece that I want to point out in this last aspect with these examples, is to say that we could address the issues raised in this article if we just knew how to do business modelling well, if we mastered that skill. The reason why we have to first have made that shift from the old paradigm, the abstraction, the black and white, either all thinking, the unquestioned belief that doing good and making money are mutually exclusive. The reason why we have to have moved out of that place first to be able to actually address these problems that are being raised is because unless you get to a place where you realize 
every organisation needs a sustainable business model. And every organisation needs to be thinking about and taking responsibility for the impacts of its core business activities, regardless of legal structure, regardless of whether the primary driver to set up was that you had a beautiful product or service you wanted to offer, or whether your initial starting point for setting up the organisation was to address a specific social or environmental issue. None of those things matter. Every single organisation needs to have a sustainable business model and take responsibility for what they're actually creating, positive or negative, in the world because of their core activities. That piece and therefore learning to do business modelling is the critical foundational conversation here. Because when you read an article like this, you would think that you only need to know how to do a business model if you are a for-profit. Because that language that I talked about before, that romanticising of back in the days when it was simpler, is framing these pieces as clean-cut, clear distinctions of only for-profit organisations need to have these conversations or build these models, and it's just not true. So I'm going to just find you some of these sections that I want to just quickly draw out and reference because there's actually some really, really important um, examples. So let me read this quote here. HealthPoint Services Global was a for-profit company that raised a substantial amount of impact capital to fund its efforts to deliver integrated health services and potable water to more than 200,000 villages across rural India. While the carefully selected pilot sites delivered promising results, the company ended up selling its offering at less than what it cost to deliver them. Had HealthPoint incorporated as a non-profit, it might have been able to raise philanthropic subsidies to cover the difference between the customer's willingness and ability to pay and the full cost. That quote right there, that example right there, is incredibly tricky for a few reasons. So my response to that is, well, if you had actually tested and refined your value proposition and worked through that to deeply understand the jobs that your customer needed done, the pains that they were trying to avoid and the gains they were trying to experience, then you would have massively increased the chance of actually designing something that did land. My second point is that the other tool, so you've got the value proposition canvas that you could have used, the other tool or lens that you could have used when thinking about your business model would be to overlay IDEO's three lenses of desirability, feasibility, and viability onto your business model. 
When I read that example, what it shows to me is an organisation that only looked for desirability when they were testing this in the pilot. Do people want this? Is it appealing? Okay. We don't have a sustainable solution. We have not finished designing, piloting, prototyping, tweaking if we have only designed something that is desirable but is not feasible to actually deliver and is not viable to deliver. So that's the second tool you could have used if you knew how to do business modelling well to actually avoid this situation happening. The third piece I want to point out with this example is that I would like for us to just stop thinking that we can throw more money at things. So to basically say that an organisation has not done the thinking and design work and grappled with a business model to come up with a solution, but that the only uh, mistake they made was to set up as a for-profit, which meant they couldn't get philanthropic funding to plug the gap, is just a really messed up way of thinking about that. Because you know, if we go back to, and I'm going to give you one more example because it also speaks to uh, some of these pieces I want to talk to. But if we think about this tendency to put the nonprofit world or the doing good space in a different category that doesn't need to think about the delivery or production of their services, that doesn't have to think about the components of deeply understanding a customer and making sure you're delivering something of value someone will pay for, then we fall into this trap of that laziness that was in that last example and that comes up again in this next example, where we use limited philanthropic grant funding to plug gaps that should have been addressed by doing good business modelling. But you know whose fault that is? The fault of everyone, funders included, who continue to act as if a non-profit doesn't need a business model, who continue to act as if They're two completely different games we're playing if we run a business or we run a charity. This is bound to happen. So it's not a surprise. Let me just give you the last example. So the aspect related to, again, they gave another example about a non-profit where they were operating in a space where the market was still forming there was no established customer and there was little willingness to pay for the full cost of the service at either the charity or the consumer end. Now, they then went on to talk about that there was also challenges that they had to grapple with, this nonprofit had to grapple with around available capital. And the way the article frames it is that because of all of these factors, it was great that they decided to set up as a non-profit because they could tap into philanthropic funding, corporate sponsorship, 
and other ways to develop a proof of concept. This follows straight on from that piece I was just talking about. That what we're doing here is actually creating a situation where capital, whether it is a grant or investment, is not actually always the answer. And it can mask fatal flaws in a business model. It allows laziness and it robs us of the opportunity to think differently and truly innovate and keep working that business model till we find a win-win solution. Now, the aspect that I also want to point out related to this, that I just want to call out because it is not true. If you think that when you're in a tricky market or there's a bunch of factors that make designing a sustainable business model difficult, if you think that a corporate will only interact because you're a nonprofit, I fundamentally disagree. And it comes back to the piece I spoke about in the power dynamics session when I was talking about those aspects of getting into a situation where a corporate or any kind of partner or funder thinks they're helping a nonprofit. So I would argue if we come back to this piece of if we actually knew how to do business modeling and do it well and use all those tools I just spoke about, then if you came to a corporate and articulated how your proof of concept was going to serve them and address their problems, if you framed it like that as a solution for them, rather than coming in and asking them to help you, the poor nonprofit, then I guarantee they would engage with you regardless, completely regardless of your legal structure. This is the last piece I'm just going to hammer home related to the article. Because again, I just want to point out that what the authors have done is frame legal structure and your decision about legal structure as being the solution and the answer to all these problems. Their examples and their argument are deeply flawed and do not own the fact that they are sitting in that old paradigm. As we wrap up, what I want to point out is that rather than HBR, Harvard Business Review, rather than an HBR article on four factors to inform legal structure choice, what we actually should be talking about is equipping leaders in every type of organisation to develop a both-and mindset that ends this bifurcation and starts to bring doing good and making money back together. The second piece we should be talking about is the importance of mastering business modelling for every organisation. Don't even mention legal structure because it's irrelevant. And the third is actually equipping people with an ability to shift 
power dynamics. So if I just sit with those three pieces that I wish this article had been talking about instead of focusing on legal structure, I want to just sit with that for one moment because you may be thinking, regardless of what type of organisation you run or who you are, you may be thinking, I don't actually fully understand what you mean when you talk about learning how to do business modelling. I have been running business model workshops since 2011. I love the business model canvas. That's the tool I use. It's deceptively simple but incredibly powerful. And I had stopped running those for ages and had been resisting doing it. But lately, the lack of understanding of the role business modelling plays in us actually developing organisations that can be powerful agents for change in the world, regardless of what it is that their product or service is, regardless of why they were founded in the first place, or whether they sit in some traditional notion of a charity or a traditional notion of a business. All of that aside, the need to learn this skill of not how to come into the workshop with me and design your business model and then laminate it and put it on the wall, but how to actually be equipped to start to understand the business model canvas as a tool, as a framework, and to learn to do business modelling That I-N-G on the end is critical. You need to know how to do business modelling, not to simply have a business model. So with that in mind and with seeing how foundational this is and yet how it is not a common skill, and I mean that across the board, with really established businesses that when push comes to shove, they cannot explain their business model. I have started to run these workshops again. So if you want to get your head around that, there's two aspects. There's the primary introduction component to business modelling and then there is a specific add-on that you can do after that if you are someone who's in that traditional space that people would have called in this article the non-profit space or the social enterprise space, charity. There's a specific add-on that I also run where I go into the six common traps that nonprofits and social enterprises come up against when they are trying to develop a sustainable business model. So I really just want to encourage you for a moment to consider if that is something that would be worthwhile for you to learn how to do. And if it is, wherever you happen to be connected to me, if you're watching on YouTube, just put it in the comments. If you're on LinkedIn, do the comments, or if you're connected directly with me, send me a message. All you have to do is just write business model and I will send you information to connect you in with those workshops. Two other little pieces that I just want to speak to that are sort of side notes of as we're wrapping up this conversation, components I would like us to be aware of. The first is to move away from the automatic assumption 
that when you set up an organization, you're going to need to raise capital. That assumption is not necessarily true. And I think it's unhelpful and it drives a lot of the arguments in articles like this and, and in many of the conversations that we're having. So don't assume that you're going to need to have capital. It may not be the case. And the second is that I want to encourage you to take a longer-term view. Many of the challenges and the pieces that force people to take on capital or make them think they need to take on philanthropic funding actually come down to the fact that they don't have a long-term view. If you master that skill of business modelling and you use the business model canvas to design, test, iterate and truly push yourself to innovate, then you will be able to keep playing with that until you design a model that works. And the capital may end up being a a cop-out and something that just uh, made you be able to (laughs) get away with and hide flaws in a business model. So the, the last piece, if you, as I said, you can reach out if you want to get some information about the business model workshops or the nonprofit add-on to that. If you simply just want to get a little bit of an overview to understand more about this role and the foundational skill of business modeling, but you don't yet think you want to do the workshop, then Just connect with me again in the same way, either in the comments or with a message, and just write cheat sheet. And I will send you an overview of some of my thoughts and recommendations around how you think about and start to develop a business model, regardless of what type of organization you're running. I hope that's been helpful. I realise that um, I got a bit passionate there in a few of these sections. But I, I wanted to have this conversation because it is important that we call out the unhealthy and damaging components of what we can actually just be continuing to entrench in the way people think about and run organisations. And so I hope that it was thought-provoking. I hope that regardless of where you sit, what kind of organisation you run, that there are some pieces that you are going to reflect on and think differently about, and more importantly than that, that you are then going to behave differently that you are going to run your organisation differently and start to think about your options differently. If you have any questions or um, want to clarify anything that I've said today or disagree with me, I would love to hear from you. Feel free to comment publicly or to send me a message. But I hope that this has been another little step in that journey for you to start to see how the either-or mindset, if left unquestioned, is not just neutral, 
it's actually deeply unhelpful. It is damaging and it is something that we need to address, question and shift. And I passionately believe that the way we have to shift and where we have to move to is the both and mindset. Two things can be equally true. Thank you for taking the time to listen to both success and integrity with Bessie Graham. If you found what I shared today valuable, or you think that it would be good for a fellow business leader to listen to, then please share the episode with someone you know. Another way to help the podcast is to provide a rating and written review on your podcast app of choice. The written review is important because it helps others learn more about what we're trying to achieve. If you'd like to get in touch, please reach out to me at any time on LinkedIn, YouTube or Instagram just by searching Bessie Graham or you can go to BessieGraham.com. I'm Bessie Graham and remember, you don't have to choose between experiencing success or having integrity in your life.